Housing affordability is top of mind for Canadians right now. While some can afford to get into the housing market, many have just given up on the possibility of ever owning their own home. It's become a marquee issue for opposition leader Pierre Polyev, who blames the housing crisis on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Liberal government. In Quebec City this weekend, he addressed Canadians in his first election-style speech since becoming leader of his party last year. ...where the people who build our homes cannot afford to live in them is fundamentally unjust and wrong. Even though housing is primarily a provincial and municipal responsibility, Prime Minister Trudeau said his government was more interested in taking action than blaming scapegoats. Over the past years, we've seen a lot of people or a lot of different groups blamed for the housing crisis. At one point, it was uh, foreign home buyers. Uh, at another point, it was uh, developers uh, being uh, super aggressive. Uh, another point, it was underinvestments by various orders of government. Another point now, it's uh, people are saying, oh, it's international students. Yes, there's lots of different factors that go into this housing crisis, but it's something that has been brewing and developing over the past number of decades. And it's an issue that has specific resonance for Canada's Jewish population. A few weeks ago, the new housing minister, Sean Fraser, said Canada might need to crack down on universities attracting foreign students who may be driving up rental prices. Ontario Premier Doug Ford has repeatedly blamed Ottawa's increase to the numbers of newcomers allowed into Canada for his province's housing crisis. And a recent nationwide survey conducted by Canadian research company Nanos for CTV News suggests that roughly three in five Canadians support decreasing the number of immigrants allowed into the country until housing becomes more affordable. Needless to say, rising fears of immigrants, rootless cosmopolitans, and foreign influences undermining Canadian livelihoods does not usually bode well for Jews. As well, housing affordability has deep impacts on Canadian Jews concerned with community continuity. When housing is unaffordable, people live with their parents longer, delay marriage, delay family formation, and may only start building equity in a home a decade later than their parents did. This is the CJN Daily sponsored by Metropia. Today on our show, I speak with Noam Dalgan from Vancouver, who leads a project to hack the housing market, matchmaking strangers who pool their money to buy a home together. His collaborative homeownership organization, Coho BC, helps clients meet potential co-buyers and provides guidance on shared property ownership. He walks me through how co-buyers build the trust to co-sign a mortgage and commit to a home together the legal logistics of the arrangements, and how thinking about homeownership in this unorthodox way may be one piece in solving the housing crisis. I'm Zach Kaufman, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. Beth David Hebrew School is now accepting new students. One of Toronto's most dynamic, egalitarian, conservative congregations is offering personalized Hebrew lessons, hands-on learning, exciting field trips, and small group activities, all with a hot dinner included. This is Jewish exploration that will last your children a lifetime. Classes run weekly on Monday nights from 5 to 7.15 p.m. starting September 18th. To learn more and enroll, visit BethDavid.com or email Adina, that's A-D-I-N-A, at BethDavid.com. Joining me now as he's traveling in New York City is Noam Dalgan. Noam, welcome to the CJN Daily. 
Thanks for having me here. Delighted to be back. Uh, you co-founded this organization called Coho BC. I've seen you call it uh, a housing hack. Can you talk about what it is and how it works? Absolutely. Um, so Coho BC is the Collaborative Home Ownership Initiative uh, here in British Columbia, though it is part of a movement across Canada and across the world of people looking at how they can build better, more affordable housing solutions through working together and co-owning properties. We can often bring the prices down, um, hopefully by at least 20 or 30% from what it might cost you to buy a traditional condo or townhouse or half duplex. And just as importantly, it's a mechanism to build more community into our housing. So not to be stuck in a building with a bunch of strangers, but to find people that you share values with, that you can really support each other uh, in the long run. And it really tries to help center housing as a triple bottom line philosophy. So that triple bottom line, we mean something that is good for the planet, good for community, and good financially. And your home is going to be the number one decision you make uh regarding your environmental footprint, your social connections, and of course, your financial uh, abilities. And so this allows us to build all three of those into one housing solution. I think one difficulty with talking about housing affordability is that there's a sort of zero-sum quality or that there can seem like a sort of zero-sum quality to the issue where expensive housing is, while it's bad for home buyers, it uh, would be seen as good for homeowners who would see their property values increasing. Why do you think homeowners should care about this? Or should they? I think we're seeing a real death of many of our urban neighborhoods as the boomer generation ages and younger families can't afford to move into those, those neighborhoods. I think more more families, more people living in those areas makes those neighborhoods more vibrant, more engaging, and a better place to be. Um, and so I think it's in everyone's interest to figure out how to keep what were once wonderful family neighborhoods um, affordable to all. So w what does your organization, Coho BC, actually do? Does it... Um is it a real realty or like what what is what does it actually do? So I work as a real estate agent here in Vancouver with you know a specialty in co-ownership and other kind of creative forms of community and affordability and sustainability. So you know looking at other options that do exist as well. People have been co-buying properties for for many years. It's not a new concept though it is growing immensely in popularity. The, you know the stranger matchmaking thing is a newer phenomenon. And we're probably, you know, in the in the tens or hundreds, you know, across the country who are who've been match made. But um, but in general, you know, the latest surveys say that anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of non-owners see co-ownership as one of their only pathways into home ownership at this time, given the price price points. Um, so, you know, it, it, it has been done and it's getting just more and more popular every week, it seems. But many haven't necessarily understood the particular issues that might go into a co-buy and the importance of having the right legal structure, the right social structure, and the right financial structure to set you up for success down the road. 
Can you elaborate on, on, yeah, what are some of those things that people might not think about? The- Absolutely. So, you know, talking in advance about your social arrangements, about how much collectivity you want, how much you want to be able to rely on each other. Are you going to be doing communal meals? Are you going to be sharing space or just kind of overlapping in space? Are really important to set the expectations from the beginning, right? Um, financial is also a key piece because under Canadian law, Everybody who owns a property together has to be on a mortgage together, but there are specialty products to help structure that mortgage so that each of you is responsible for your own section of the mortgage. Uh, And then the biggest one, of course, is the legal agreement. What happens if someone stops paying the bills? What happens when somebody wants to leave? How do you make decisions? And what we find is that as long as you have these conversations in advance and you really plan for the eventuality that life changes, situation changes, and you may need to one or two one of the parties may want to leave the arrangement, or there might be some you know unexpected situation in someone's life. As long as you plan for it in advance and have the conversations when everything is good, then you can avoid finding yourselves in legal or even social battles down the road. So we do spend a lot of time looking at worst case scenarios and, you know, they don't happen that often, but when they do happen, it's nice to know you have a plan. You have a plan for when it's time for someone to sell. Generally, it's a first right of refusal. Your partner buys you out. Next, you try to sell the share to a third party. And so we're now actively helping to sell shares in existing properties. And then it's usually protected by the right to force a sale of the property as a whole. So it's a mechanism by which the party who wants to stay has a pathway to stay. They can either find a new partner or buy the other person out. But the party who wants to leave knows that they can also, after a period of time, be able to sell outright and get their money and move on to the next place. And by having these conversations, by having the plan, by having the legal agreement, you really avoid ever ending up in arbitration or in court or even just in your in your social arrangement degrading. And and are banks willing to give mortgages to uh, these types of arrangements? Absolutely. Banks love multiple owners on title because it means more people they can come after if there's ever a problem. Um, So in general, you could walk into any bank, you know, two, three, four, five people and say, we all want to get a mortgage together on a property. Do you get a, a sense of, is there like a specific demographic cohort that is attracted to this type of model? Is it primarily young people? Is it people who with uh, all love and respect, like would want to live in like a hippie commune? <laughs> or um, is it also sort of more traditional folks as well? Yeah. So it's definitely people of all social types Um, You know, we see a lot of families looking to do this with their own family. We see friends looking to do it with friends, and they definitely don't have to be the hippie types. One of the big misunderstandings is that we're not necessarily creating a commune, that there are models of this where you can live collectively, you know, four or five of you all in a house together. But most of our work is actually in homes that mimic condos or, or townhouses, so houses with multiple suites in them. And then in terms of the demographic groups we see doing this, I mean, there are three major groups who come at it at three very different times in their lives. We certainly see the first-time home buyers who, in their 20s and 30s, who would be living with roommates anyways, can't afford a one-bedroom apartment because they're ridiculously expensive, but by teaming up with friends, 
They can all get into the market. They can live collectively for five years or so and build some equity so that when they are ready to go buy with a future partner, um, they can do it. We also see single people and couples in the boomer and the kind of retiree generation who realize they don't need the housing that they might have traditionally had and who want more social support as they age and are feeling a little more isolated uh, at this stage in life, coming together to buy together. And then the biggest group in many ways that we see are young families who really want, who need a three-bedroom space often to raise a family in and just can't afford it, and who really see the value in that outdoor space, in that storage space, and in having other families around, whether it be for having their, so their friends, their kids can have friends, or so that they can go out and do some quick shopping and know there's another family around to look after their kids, whatever it might be. So those are the three groups we see most often, singles, you know, in their 20s and 30s, singles and couples in their 50s to 80s, and young families in their 30s and 40s taking advantage mm. of this. So everyone. Um, but yes, I, I get your point. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the sort of pairing up process? Do people find each other independently or is there some sort of like uh, match.com element where people can create um, profiles? Is there a housing shotgun? <laughs> How does it work? Yeah. So the easiest thing is clearly if you come with your own partner, uh, if you are doing this looking to buy parents and their children, or if you have friends who you've who you think you have shared values and, and, and shared goals with. So we certainly can help set you up uh, in the right housing and, again, with the right conversations and legal structure. Uh, but we do offer matchmaking services as well, and there are other shotchaniot um, across across the country, a, a website called Housemates in Ontario. So at Coho BC, we do a, a multi-pronged approach to matchmaking, uh, we have an online survey you can fill out, and then our matchmaker will reach out to you and see what they can do in terms of direct matchmaking. We also do online uh, and in-person events so that people can meet other folks and just naturally you know, build those social relationships and, uh, on their own, but through our platform. So we're working on, on all these levels to try to create pathways for folks to find potential partners. And we've had some great success in putting, you know, a couple dozen people together to acquire properties um, of a whole variety of types. Yeah, that matching with a stranger. Obviously, this is a big financial investment. There's a lot of trust that's needed. It, before you, like, move in with a, a romantic partner, you, like, date for many years. H how do partners uh, build that trust? Well, I think that comparison to dating is really apt, and we use that all the time in our work. We talk about a three-stage process with potential partners, a dating, engagement, and, ma and marriage stage. So the first stage is dating. You are getting to know people who are potential partners, and you're also dating the housing, getting to understand what's available in your price point, in your region. And then when you feel like you understand what you need from a housing perspective, um, you start to get more serious with a couple of those people. You go through an engagement phase where you really discuss your finances, you discuss your timelines, you discuss your likes and don't likes, your deal breakers, you discuss your weird habits that might drive others crazy, right? You want to be transparent because you don't want a year into this to find out that you're, the fact that you stay up till two in the morning 
you know, is going to be a problem for them, or the fact you really like to smoke, you know, pastrami in the backyard, and you know, it's going to be an issue for them. I know everyone's got their own quirks, so it, it is an extensive dating process, and and then only once you feel like you're confident uh, with them, you move towards the marriage process. But even in the marriage, you know, we then encourage these legal agreements that are basically prenuptial agreements. And there's all sorts of conversations that, that happen again at that stage to explore, you know, what what will happen in case, in case not in case this falls apart, in case this changes, because this may be a marriage, but it's not necessarily until death do you part, right? It's it, you go in here with a time frame, whether it be five, fifteen, thirty-five years, but you know that at some point, you know, life might change. You might be ready to downsize. You might be ready to upsize. Um, and or someone might, might die or will die. So, you know, you, you plan for all that stuff. So it really is much like dating. Um, I sold a house recently in East Vancouver. We had 12 parties who were seriously interested in buying in. And so the remaining party went on a date, went on for about an hour or two with all the parties who were interested, chose two of them that they thought would be a better fit than the rest, and went out again with them a couple times chose one that they thought would be the best fit and then went through the whole legal process with them. So it's it's not something you you do quickly. Uh, can you tell me just uh, what is your background? Have you always been a realtor? Um you know, how did you get involved in this whole uh co-co-ownership cohabitating world? So my background was actually as a Jewish professional before getting into real estate. Um Ooh. I ran um the, I was a leader in the Jewish environmental movement, running Canada's first Jewish environmental organization, Adam Varama, here in Vancouver over two decades ago, and running the Teva Learning Center, which is the North America's largest Jewish environmental education center oh. out of New York for a decade. Oh, I worked for Teva. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, keep going. Um, yeah. And then when I came back to Vancouver, I did some work with Federation. And so my background was in, you know, sustainability and community engagement. So when I moved into real estate, because being a Jewish professional does not pay well enough and uh, the community can be a very hard partner. Um, mm. And that's another conversation we should have about how we can treat our professionals better to give them a longer, mm. a longer lifespan in that important um job. Uh, but I was looking for something that really combined all those pieces that how do we create community and how do we create uh, environmental sustainability and real estate became an obvious pathway. Most people wouldn't think of real estate as an obvious pathway after environmental and, and communal work. But as I said, the home you choose is the number one choice you're going to make with regards to how how socially isolated you feel, how much you're tied into the Jewish community or other communities that are important, and to how you reduce your footprint. So real estate became an obvious pathway for me. And then in real estate, it became clear, especially as prices continued to escalate over the last decade, that that co-ownership was the best path to to help people actualize those visions. Particularly as someone who's come from the Jewish professional world, uh, yeah, are there certain things that you think about um, this connecting with the Jewish community in a certain way? Yeah, so definitely through co-ownership, you can create micro Jewish communities, right? Surrounding yourself with neighbors <clears throat> that 
share your values or share your practice, people you can have a Shabbat dinner with, or you can get together for a breakfast, um, set up a sukkah together in the backyard, you know, things like that. So I think it becomes a great pathway for that. <clears throat> Again, as I was saying, it, it's a way to stay in more of the urban centers, which tend to be where historically the Jewish communities are located, though that's changing more and more um, across the country. But it would allow people to stay close to the synagogues and, and close to the other resources that are available. The, you're, you're obviously based in Vancouver. Uh, do you know if uh, some of these co-ownership trends are happening uh, more broadly in Canada and are only certain municipalities zoned to be able to do this? Are there ones, uh, are there regions that are more friendly or less friendly to these types of arrangements? So the co-ownership allows you to take advantage of the housing that's there in the first place. So generally any municipality, you know, any, as long as there's a housing type that is, that meets your particular needs, you can make this work at. Um, there are some historic anti-boarding house rules in many of our municipalities that make it illegal for more than three unrelated adults to live collectively. Those rules are rarely enforced, but they are on the books and you have to be careful of them. Uh, the province of Ontario recently eliminated those rules across the board for people 55 plus. Now, why the Ontario government thinks only people over 55 need that level of community and affordability is beyond me. Clearly it's, it's essential at all ages. Um, so you do have to be a little bit uh, aware of the, of the local municipal rules. Though, as I said, they're, they're not usually enforced. If you can find housing that fits your needs uh, in a region, you can do this pretty much anywhere. Great. Well, I really appreciate you being with us here today, Noam. And um, thank you for joining. Yeah, delighted to be here. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. We're a proud member of the CJN Podcast Network. Our executive producer is Michael Freeman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.